Rage Machine Books presents The Dark Worlds Podcast, examining the culture of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Derek Ferguson is a writer from Brooklyn, New York. He's best known for his Dylan novels, which he began writing in the early 2000s, and have continued to be quite popular. He has written short stories, novellas, and novels for new pulp publishers, such as Pro Se Press and Airship 27. G.W. Thomas and I sat down to talk with Derek recently. We began by asking him when he decided to become a writer. It was never a conscious decision. I was writing ever since I was in elementary school. You know, uh, as far back as I can remember, I've been writing. When I was in elementary school, I was like in the sixth grade. And people probably heard me tell this story before. But what I did was that I would write uh, chapters of Edgar Rice Burroughs' kind of influenced stories using my classmates as the characters. And they would end up getting, you know, uh, trapped in some lost land with dinosaurs or aliens from the future. And I would write on both sides of a loose leaf sheet of paper. And on the opposite side, I would end the story in the cliffhanger. <clears throat> and then I would pass that around. And that chapter would go all around the classroom and everybody would read it, even the teacher. And then when it got back to me, then I would write the next chapter. Now, this had the added benefit that it taught me how to grow uh, thick skin quickly as far as criticism. Okay, because I got immediate feedback from my classmates as to how good or how bad that chapter was. So, uh, yeah, being a writer is something that never was something that I made a pronouncement, well, I'm going to be a writer. I mean, I always felt that I was going to be a writer, no matter what other jobs I was doing or, you know, whatever else I was doing, you know, to pay the bills. I was still writing all the time. I would go to work. And then in the evening, you know, sit down, have dinner with my wife and stuff like that. And, she, you know, we watch TV. She would go to bed and I would stay up and I would write out a couple of chapters or a short story. And you mentioned Edgar Rice Burroughs. So obviously you sort of aligned yourself with, with the pulp style writing right from the beginning. Do you consider yourself a pulp writer? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I, ne- I mean, I didn't really know that there was a name for it until it was around like in the late 70s what I call the great pulp boom of the 70s, where uh, I discovered uh, Doc Savage, of course, with those great uh, covers mm-hmm. drawn by James Bomber. And then after that, there was like a whole explosion. They brought the shadow back and paperback. Jim Steranko did the covers. Uh, Tarzan books came back, and those covers were done by Neil Adams. You know, I mean, I had already been a big fan of uh, Marvel comic books and DC comic books, but this was something new. And I just devoured them, you know, like mad because back then we're talking about the late 70s, early 80s. Paperbacks were 75 cents, 80 cents a dollar. I came home with like every weekend, I came home with like about like a dozen paperbacks. What's the first one you remember getting? The first one I remember getting, I, you know what? It probably was Robert E. Howard, something by Robert E. Howard because I knew Conan from the comic books. And then when I saw the paperbacks, that's what I remember getting first, Robert E. Howard. Doc Savage followed very shortly after that, because I got to be friends with the guy who ran the bookstore that uh, I would buy my all my books from. And he would actually hold the Doc Savage novels anytime any new one came out, he would actually hold a copy for me to make sure that I got it. So it was it probably was, Con- I think it was Robert E. Howard first, because I got turned on to Robert E. Howard and Michael Moorcock and Edgar Rice Burroughs at fairly young age. I remember reading them when I was like in junior high school. Yeah, Edgar Rice Burroughs, especially in junior high school, I remember reading him. I probably discovered him first. Jules Verne, of course, if you want to really go back to like the original pulp writer, yeah, Jules Verne was definitely my first because I was reading 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Mysterious Island and all of his stuff. I just devoured his stuff like it was, you know, forget about it. Yeah. I mean, like a starving man, you know. Yeah. Well, back then people would give you Jules Verne and say, here, read this kid, you know, as opposed well, to the later, you know, Edgar Rice Burroughs, they say, oh, that stuff will rot your brain. Don't read that. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, I was that sort of kid nobody had to force me to read. Mm-hmm. In fact, as a matter of fact, I, I, I very distinctly remember 
when I was in elementary school being called up to read in front of the class. And I read this thing and blah, blah, blah. And the teacher was looking at me kind of funny and she gave me like another book to read. And I read that with no problem because my parents claimed I was reading from the age of two or three. I don't remember that far back, of course, but that's what they tell me. But anyway, the teacher seemed to be amazed at my ability to read so well. And she called my mother up, and I don't know what happened between the two of them to this day. My mother won't tell me. But from then on, anytime the rest of the class was reading, she would just tell me, go in the back and read whatever I want to read. Yeah, I, I think all of us have had kind of a similar experience with that. I know that uh, in, when you mentioned uh, Ed Grace Burroughs in grade school, I know I remember one point in my uh, grade school class, I was not paying attention and uh, daydreaming, and the teacher sort of looked at me and said, come out of those trees, Tarzan. So, yeah. so, so he, he knew right, right away where my head was. When did you first start deciding to, uh, to share your, your writing with a larger audience? I've always, I've never been shy about <laughs> sharing. You know, I, I, you know, I mean, friends of mine and family would read my stuff and they would say, oh, you want to, you know, write a book or, you know, you want to write movies or, you know, you got a great imagination and stuff like that. So, I mean, I was always, and then back before the internet, you know, people would get together writers and I found like little writers groups and stuff like that. And now, you know, where we would trade stories back and forth in the eighties. The first time a professional told me that I had talent enough to be a professional writer, I went in, it was in the late eighties, the science fiction writer, Jacqueline Lichtenberg, I don't know if you're familiar with the name. Yeah, yeah. No. Okay. I've heard yeah. Of but she ran a writing, she had a writing seminar down in Kentucky. And I flew down there. And, uh, you know, she, you had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with her where she would, you know, you would give her a story or a fragment of a novel or whatever you were working on. And she would read it. And then she would sit down with you and go over the story with you and tell you what you did wrong or what you liked, and, you know what she liked and what she did. And we got along great. And matter of fact, um, when I found her on Facebook, we're still in contact today. And uh, yeah, she was like the first professional writer to tell me. She said, yeah. She said, you know what, you, she said, yeah, whatever it is, she said, you have it. I, I had a similar experience with um, Pauline Gedge, the um, historical writer. She was the writer in residence and same kind of thing, got to bring in some work and she looked it over and I guess the ultimate compliment was she couldn't do anything for me because, you know, I was on my way and there were other people that needed her advice more, but uh, it was, it was good to show it to a professional and kind of get an idea, you know, do you have what it takes? So I get what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I always felt I could write, you know, but yeah, you know, when you have somebody who actually, and she was, you know, like involved with Star Trek and she had written some Star Trek novels and, she had like this whole science fiction universe of her own going on. So yeah, anytime, you know, and people say, oh, well, I don't care about the opinion of so-and-so. Well, yes, you do. I mean, it, let's be honest. When you have a professional, you know, point at you and say, okay, well, you got it, whatever it is. Yes, that makes a difference. And, you know, I said, okay, cool. Well, you know what? And then I said, maybe I can make a living out of this one day. I'm still waiting for that day, mind you, but I'm, I'm having a lot of fun along the way until I get there. Uh, same, same, with, same with us. <laughs> Many people know what you mean. What was your first book? First book I wrote or first book I got published? First, first book that you got published. Dylan and the Voice of Odin. So that was, that was your, your first introduction was through the Dylan that, books. That was the very first book I got. But yeah. That was uh, okay. First. Tell me about Dylan. Well, I'm a big believer in uh, writing stories that you want to see. When people ask me, they say, oh, well, why did you write this? Why did you write? Well, nobody else was writing it. So I said, well, I have to do it. When I was a kid and me and my father and I, we went to see a James Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, which was my first James Bond movie I saw in, in, in the theater. And afterwards, you know, we were going home and, and, you know, we were talking. I said, well, dad, how come there's a black James Bond? And he said, well, I guess when you get old and you get to be a writer, you'll have to create one. So Dylan is is born out of my love of James Bond and Doc Savage and Nick Fury, Agent of Shield. There's a lot of that in the uh, you know uh, the Derek Flint movies with James Coburn. You know those are you know that was a very irreverent spy character 
and there's a lot of that in Dylan too. And I just wanted to create a character that emulated the spirit of those classic pulp characters in a modern context. And uh, hopefully with a black character, Doc Savage-like character, kind of like offset some of the racism that was prevalent in the classic pulps, which I do love and which I acknowledge. And I get into this with people all the time. They say, oh, yes, but they're so racist. Yeah, but you know what? But you can take the elements that made them so fresh and fun and exciting and transplant them into a modern setting, a modern context with modern heroes and kind of offset that. You know, you don't have to just ignore everything that came before because it was racist and sexist. And yeah, okay, we know all of that. But, you know, let's bring all of that fun and excitement of that style of writing into today, which is what I hope that I'm doing, you know, with, you know, my writing, not just the Dylan stuff, but everything else that I'm doing. Yeah. And the, the Dylan books are great. And uh, obviously, you know, they, they've been fairly successful. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm still, I mean, listen, I would do them I'm not getting rich, of a no. book, but the point is, is that I'm having a tremendous amount of fun and the character is, is very popular. I hear from people all the time. They say, Oh, well, when are you going to write another one? And, and, Oh, I love this one. And, Oh, I love this character. And I like this character. And, and uh, yeah, so I seem to have succeeded on that level that the character has found an audience with a lot of people. Now, you wrote a, a, a young Dylan book. What was that like? That was fascinating because Tommy Hancock, who drives me mad, but I love him like a brother. <laughs> he, he had an idea for an imprint for uh, Prose Productions, which is his publishing outfit. Uh-huh. that he was going to do young versions of, you know, various characters and stuff like that. Just have an imprint of Pope books for younger readers. So he said, well, why don't you do a young Dylan book? And it had always been in the back of my mind that because in the first book, Dylan and the voice of Odin, he's been around for about like 10 years. So what I did was just drop the readers into the middle of an adventure and didn't tell you much about his background and just let you figure it out. And you just follow him through this crazy adventure. And that was designed to hook you into who he was. And of course, later on, as I wrote more books, people say, okay, what was he like when he was younger? You know, oh, you, you mentioned that his parents got killed and, you know, he lived in this strange mystical land, you know, what's that all about? So it was always my intention to go back and fill in those gaps. And I did that with Young Dylan in the Halls of Shambhala, where we at last see how he made it to that mystical land. And after his parents were murdered and what happened to him, you know, when he was a kid. Now, I remember when it came out, I saw a picture. You, you, I don't know if it was, you posted it. There was a picture of a young man reading it. I don't know. Did someone send that into you or? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody sent that into me. Who was it? Oh my God. I, I can't think of his name. Right but now. I just thought how, how inspiring must that be to have to see a picture of this, this kid reading your book. And, and that's his, his sort of gateway into, you know, we talk about Edgar Rice Burroughs being our gateway into the pulp books and, and, you know, if, if young Dylan was the gateway for this young man, that's, that's an amazing thing. Yeah. And that's an amazing yeah. way to give back. That, I mean, when I saw that picture, because the gentleman, and I, you know what, he's going to kill me, that I'm blanking on his name right now, but he teaches school in uh, one of the southern states. And he, out of his own pocket, he had bought a whole bunch, he had, whole, he had bought a whole bunch of copies of that novel and then given them to the young black men in his class. And he took a picture of that. And, you know, yeah, that was any time that I started to get like kind of discouraged about this and say, I'm not getting anywhere with this and I'm not going to go anywhere. You know what? I pull that picture up and I look at it and it reminds me that that's who I'm writing for. More recent, I guess it was just a story, uh, a recent story. And I love the title, the Dylan and the Badass Belt Buckle. Yeah, that was a short story. Everybody, matter of fact, that's a lot of people said that's like their favorite Dylan story. I just love the title. You've got other characters other than Dylan, obviously. I mean, the Sebastian Red is like a weird Western sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it. Whenever anybody asks me to describe it, I say, okay, well, imagine if Michael Moorcock and Sergio Leone had ever collaborated on a Western. Pretty much, that's what it is. Sebastian Red is 
a character that wanders this alternate wild west that has vampires and werewolves and sorcerers and there's magic because he can do like a little bit of magic. He's not exactly a sorcerer, but he knows how to protect himself against attacks if like a sorcerer decides he wants to attack him. And pretty much he he roams around having these adventures that start out like your typical Western, but some kind of way these supernatural elements get involved in it. Like in the very first story, he's hired by a wealthy rancher to go into a town and recover his daughter who's been kidnapped. Okay, you say, yeah, I've seen a lot of Westerns like that. Yeah, but the town is inhabited by zombies. There's that little twist, that little spin on it. How many Sebastian Red stories are there so far? Funny you should mention that because I am working on a story now called The Bloodstained Trail, which which will be the last story in a collection that I hope I'm going to have out this year. There's like, there are four other Sebastian Red stories. There's a fifth one that was uh, published in an anthology straight out of Tombstone that came out earlier this year. That was from Bane Books. Right, exactly. Yeah, that was, and I want, I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to get to that. You have been in an, in an anthology published by Bane, one of the legacy publishers. I was blown away when I saw your name amongst the, the writers there. That must have you, been an absolutely... You were blown away. I was blown away when I realized I was going to have a story in the same book with, God rest his soul, Mike Resnick. Yes. Oh, my God. I have every, like, Mike Resnick book. I love that guy's writing. And, I, you know, when David Boot contacted me, which which also is a very good thing. And, yeah, it's good when you have editors contacting you and saying, listen, I want you to write something for me. I, what? Really? You want me to write? Wait, wait a minute. You got Mike Resnick in your book. You don't need me. Okay, so you didn't just submit to an anthology. They asked, they, they said, you, we want a story. We want a Derek Ferguson story. Yeah, David Boop, he emailed me and he said, listen, I want you to, you know, do you have, he said, could you write something for, could I write something for you? <laughs> stand by, stand by. <laughs> and yeah, I dropped everything. And of course it was weird Western. Uh-huh. So, yeah, and I I had plenty of ideas for a Sebastian Red story already. So, you know, yeah. So, bam, I I wrote that sucker down. I wrote that sucker in about two or three weeks and sent it off uh-huh. to him, you know, from start it, to finish. Yeah. First draft of last. And, uh, yeah, it's in there. Wow. And it's one of my proudest achievements. Uh, is, your, is, your, is your head too big to get through the door now? Is that... <laughs> oh, it was too big to get through the door before that. My you mentioned was, I, Lovecraft at the uh, beginning here. Have you ever written any um, Lovecraftian fiction or even weird westerns with Lovecraft in them? Actually, the the Sebastian Ridge story I'm writing now, yeah, it has a Lovecraftian element in Excellent. it. I, you know what? Even though I would like to do that, like there's certain things I don't think I can write because I'm kind of like, intimidated by uh i was intimidated to write straight west because i didn't think well i can't write that because now then i gotta do research and okay let me put it this way it's easy to write a weird western because it's a weird western you can stick anything you want in there you don't have to be you, you don't have to adhere to a specific time period because it's a weird western it's your world you've invented it but if you're writing a straight western well, now you have to do your research and you have to pay attention to the types of clothing and, and guns that are being used and all this other kind of stuff. So I was intimidated about writing that until I was asked to, of course, write Bass Reeves, Fair Ship 27. Now I've written four Bass Reeves stories, so I can't go around saying I'm intimidated, too intimidated to write a certain thing anymore. That won't work. <laughs> so, so, so your Bass Reeves story are, are straight Westerns? Yes, yes, they are. Because he was the actual person that lived and worked in, you know, the Old West. He's mm-hmm. a historical, you know, guy. So I didn't have the luxury of, but then again, like I said, that forced me to play by the rules. And you know what? That actually was kind of fun. It turned out to be, turned out to be fun. And, and Bass Reeves has become kind of just huge in recent years with his appearance at the beginning of the, the Watchmen TV series. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the movie Hell on the Border with Ron Perlman's in it. And the, the Airship 27 collections, of course. How much research do you have to do for something like that? I do enough to make me feel comfortable writing this story. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't do a whole lot of research, but because here's the thing, and it's the same thing with my Dylan stories. Fortunately, I have 
two friends of mine who were in the military. And whenever I'm not sure about a certain type of gun or the capabilities of a certain type of gun or some type of combat strategy or something like that, I, I can contact them and they'll set me straight. Because you will not have somebody email you and tell you, oh, this is a wonderfully crafted story and, you know, it was beautiful how you did this. and blah, blah. But if you get the caliber of a certain type of pistol wrong, you will get a dozen emails telling you, listen, you screwed up on this. You don't know what you're talking about. And it's the same thing with Westerns. If you use like the wrong type of saddle or the wrong type of revolver, well, this type of revolver, it was not made in 1864. It, was, it, was, it wasn't made until 1865. So, and you know, you will get that, you will get that sort of stuff. So the way that you avoid getting those type of emails is that, yes, you invest your time into doing the research, which is, which is what I did. And you know what? On a certain level, research is kind of fun. I, I, I get why people say that they get lost in doing the research and, you know, they really get tied up and do it. Me, I'm sorry, folks. I'm, I'd rather make up a fact than look it up in a second. <laughs> I'll make up a fact. But it is what it is is what you signed up for. So you got to, like I said, you have to play by the rules at some point. If you are going to write a novel or a story in that time period, don't be lazy. Don't half-ass it. Go ahead and do your research and get it. Otherwise, don't do it. You will have somebody out there that will stop reading because they say, okay, well, obviously this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. And then they're going to, you know, and then they're going to go read somebody who does know what they're talking about and who had the integrity to do his homework and do his research. Have you read any um, James B. Uh, Hendrix? He was an old pipe, a pulp writer that wrote about uh, Alaska and you know the Yukon, that kind of thing. He lived up there and he did tons of research, but he complained no matter how much research he did, he would always get someone who would write him a letter and say, you know, you did pretty good, but that river that you mentioned, it flows in the other direction or some <laughs> tiny detail that he missed. So, I mean, you can never win-win, but we, oh, we no. have to try at least. No, no. I mean, listen, you can never win. And if you, and know what, you could actually drive yourself crazy trying because, yeah, uh, because there will always be one person. Uh, my grandfather used to say there's always going to be that one bee that would rather sting than make honey. What about your Fortune McCall stories? I mean, those are set in, I guess those are set in a kind of an alternative universe. You know, it, it has a sort of historical feel to it. And, do you do a lot of research for that or is it just kind of, you just kind of wing it? I just kind of wing it. That was, again, Tommy Hancock. He had in mind a concept for a shared universe. He created this city called Sovereign City in the United States in the 1930s. And what it was is that he, he created one character, the outstandingly talented Barry Reese created one character. Well, actually, he's created a whole bunch of them now. He started out with Lazarus Gray. Mm -hmm. But now he's got like a whole bunch of characters. And I created one, Fortune McCall, which I wanted to create a black pulp character. in Because, yeah, because I looked around. There really isn't a whole lot of black pulp characters who actually operated in the 1930s. Who, who weren't, so, uh, you know, sidekicks or or, right. or, or just minor characters. or Exactly, yeah. Most of the characters that we know, like most notably, uh, Richard Henry Benson, the Avenger. He had a uh, black married couple and, you know, they were two of his aides. And one of the things that I always liked about them is that, you know, they were college educated folks. They would gather information by pretending to be, you know, your typical, you know, shuck and jive, you know. But I wanted to create a character that, yeah, this was a very well-educated man, very highly skilled. And um, the deal with Fortune McCall is that he's an African prince. He's got like eight brothers. <laughs> in, so he's like ninth in line. So his chances of inheriting the throne, unless he goes and kills his eight brothers, you know, there's no chance that he's ever going to inherit the throne. So he just decides to build this huge, it's a luxury liner combination floating casino. And he decides to just go around the world and have adventures. And he picks up a whole bunch of friends who, of course in the best pulp tradition. Each one of them had their own skills. Fortune McCall ends up in Sovereign City. And what happens is that he solves this case. 
And the mayor asked him, well, listen, could you just like stick around and be my own personal troubleshooter? I will smooth over stuff, you know, don't worry about the racial thing. I'll smooth it over as much as I can, but you'll help me out, you know, when I need help. And for his own reasons, Fortune McCall says, okay, yeah, you know what? This sounds like a good challenge. I'll do it. So that was the launching of that character and why he stays in you know, Sovereign City instead of just getting back on his boat and sailing around the world. Could you, do you think you could write a Fortune McCall story outside of Sovereign City or is that kind of a... Oh, know, absolutely. So yeah. it's, it's not, it's not, you know, you're not limited in that. You know, you no, know. no, no. I mean, and actually what I would like to do is write one that would take place, uh, it would have like four or five different stories, about 15,000 words each that would take place in a different city. Like one would take place in Morocco, one would be in Paris, just all around the world. Cause of course he's on a ship. He can go wherever he wants to go. So you've got the, uh, uh, Sebastian red collection. You're putting it together. Is that right? Or is it? Yes, I am. I am. I am working. You know what? I, I've been promising this thing for a couple of years. The problem with me is that what happens is that occasionally people will dangle a nice, bright, shiny object in front of me. <laughs> uh huh. And for whatever reason, I say, okay, well, I got to do that. Uh -huh. And I'll go off and do that. But there are only so many hours in the day. So if I do something else, well, then this project gets pushed to the side, which is kind of unfair because a lot of people have been asking me literally for years, you know, they say, okay, when are we going to see more of Sebastian Red? And I wanted all of the stories in one book because otherwise they have to go out and they have to buy four or five different anthologies if they want to get all of the Sebastian Red stories. And I said, yeah, well, you know what? I really should, you know, make them all available in one book for, so God, you know, so people don't have to hunt around for it. So that's going to be coming out roughly when? Uh, it depends on how fast I finish, how fast I finish the story. Like so I said, are you, I, so you're still writing them. You're, you're, yeah, I'm working okay. on the last all right. Working on the last story right now. I've rewritten the daggone thing about four or five times. I, I, I haven't rewritten a story this much since Dylan and the Legend of the Golden Bell, which uh -huh. I rewrote that thing about like eight times. Oh, my God. You mentioned Tommy Hancock a couple of times. And Tommy Hancock, of course, is one of the leading figures in the, uh, the new pulp movement. Mm -hmm. uh, what is that? Tell me about that. Tell me, what does that mean to you, the new pulp movement? Basically, at its core, okay, the new pulp movement or community, some people call it a community, some people call it a movement. It's a whole bunch of writers who are writing new stories, either with new characters or with classic characters that have been updated. Because you have some, you know, writers that have done that. They've taken classic pulp characters and they've updated them. And they are writing them in the style because you do have a lot of people that will tell you, well, it's not pulp because pulp is the quality of the paper that the original stories were written on. And I don't dispute that. Everybody is entitled to their own interpretation of what pulp is. But for me and for a lot of people, it's the style. For instance, you have Indiana Jones. Now, Indiana Jones is a movie. It's not on pulp paper, but I don't think that you would find anybody that would dispute that Indiana Jones is indeed pulp. One of the best examples of new pulp that I can think of, uh, you know, in a movie form, even though it, it wasn't intended to be new pulp, but the movie Buckaroo Banzai. I mean, come on, that's Doc Savage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can't get much more pulp, uh, hero pulp <laughs> adventure yeah. than, than Buckaroo Banzai. Yeah. As, as, exactly. as wacky as the movie was. As wacky. Uh, th yeah, I mean, it was pure nutty insanity from start to finish. And I loved it. And when I saw it, I said, yeah, okay, that's Paul. One of the best examples that I always tell people, the TV series 24. Okay. Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, well, Kiefer Sutherland. 24 was nothing more or less than the ultimate Saturday morning serial. Because, because what it, was it? Every season you had 24 chapters, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? And so it's like, this is, this is, so the way that 24 is structured is, is each episode was one hour. Right. And you had 24 episodes, 24 hours. You told the story in, in hour-long increments. Right. And, and of you, course, you know, and Jack Bauer is, is the hero. And of course, my, my comment on that was, when does that son of a bitch ever sleep? Uh, yeah, yeah. He's in every I mean, episode. He, he never slept through that whole 24 hours or went to the bathroom at eight. And usually at the end of every episode, either Jack 
or another cast member would be in some dire peril. It was a cliffhanger. Mm -hmm. And you had to come back next week to see how Jack got out of it. So I said, well, what is this, you know, but see, the problem is, is that so many of the elements that made up Pope have been taken by other genres that when we look at Pope now, it looks like the imitator doesn't look like the innovator, Mm -hmm. which is why, for instance, you have a character like Doc Savage. Doc Savage, well, he had a vest that was just like Batman's utility belt, belt and, uh, you know, Superman stole his fortress of solitude. Mm-hmm. So if you had a Doc Savage movie out now, and you've had so many other characters that have taken things that started with Doc, just like um, John Carter. That was a terrific movie. Mm-hmm. But I distinctly remember when I saw the movie and I'm coming out of the theater and I'm listening to these geeks talking behind me and all they're doing is listing all the things that, oh yeah, well they ripped off this, they ripped off that, they ripped off this. And I wanted to turn around and grab them by the throat and said, you dumb son of a bitch. Do you realize that everything that you just named came from John Carter? But I, I mean, I liked the movie. I, I thought it was fantastic, but yeah, I a lot of people it. said it's completely derivative. It's like, no, it's not. It's, no, it's, it's not. the original. It's where it all came from. Yeah. He's the originator. Yeah. yeah. Of course, you know, Ed Grace Burroughs, the uh, princess of Mars. Yeah, well, one of the things I used to say is that pulp, pulp isn't dead, it's just kind of changed clothes and changed addresses. I mean, you know, a lot of the pulp stories, the fast-moving pulp stories have moved. They've moved cities, they've changed to the movies, the Marvel movies, and uh, and television. You mentioned uh, like a hundred pulp-inspired movies, and now one of them was, uh, and this is really strange, because one of them that you mentioned was The Life Aquatique with Steve Sissou. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, but it just, see, to me, it was like, it's got Bill Murray in it, so it was like, how the heck is that a pulp movie? Okay, the movie, okay, he plays... Now, this is a Wes Anderson picture, isn't it? Yeah, 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 and no something, Wes Anderson, at the end of the movie, okay, you remember Buckaroo Banzai? Yes. And at the end of the movie, they did, of course, what is now known as the Banzai Strut where it's all the characters, you know, they're, you know, they're marching down and they got that nice little boop, 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 boop. <laughs> You're right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steve Zizou ends the same way. And Wes Anderson himself, yeah, I did that on purpose. And even more, he's got, um, uh, what's his name in that movie too? He played New Jersey in Buckaroo Banzai. Uh, Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum, yeah. Okay, Jeff Goldblum is in Steve Zizou. As, and Wes Anderson said, yeah, he wanted him in there because he was in Buckaroo Banzai. The capsule summary of the movie. Bill Murray plays Steve Zizou, who is an international oce- o- oceanographer, mm-hmm. I guess you would call him. He studies the oceans. Mm-hmm. And he's an adventurer. And he's near the end of his career and he's thinking that the world has no place for him no more. People don't care about this type of stuff anymore. So he's getting ready to retire, but he wants to go off on one last adventure, which is to catch the, it's a very rare shark that killed his friend. Mm-hmm. So he gets his crew together and they go on. His, and there's a great scene where Wes Anderson, he has like a cutaway and you see everybody walking around in the ship And, you know, there's little diagrams pointing to it, just like in a comic book, telling you what the different parts of the ship are. And, uh, yeah, and then pirates waylay him, and they steal some of his interns. So now him and his crew, they have to, like, suit up, and they have to get their weapons out of storage, and they have to go get the – and it turns into an action. It it starts off as this quirky-like comedy, but Mm -hmm. then gradually it develops into this action-adventure pulpit, you know kind of thing i mean i highly recommend it and at this point i should mention that you also have our movie review site uh the, the ferguson theater yes i do uh and people can find that by going to ferguson theater no where how do they find that uh google is your friend okay. google <laughs> is your friend the ferguson theater where you review you regularly review films so you're a you're a you're a film buff a film aficionado as well as as well as yes a uh my my good friend uh Dave Congalton, who I met, he wrote, he wrote the movie Authors Anonymous. Okay. And I wrote a review of that and uh, he ran across it and he emailed me and he thanked me for it. And, uh, you know, a friendship grew out of that. Matter of fact, he came a couple of years ago to Brooklyn for a wedding and we met up and he's had me as a guest on his radio show a couple of times. He very graciously calls me a film historian, which I tell Dave, don't call me that. You know, I'm not, I have, it really, I haven't been to film school. 
I have not been trained in any kind of film kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Me writing the me writing the movie reviews actually was something. It was one of the ways that I tricked myself into not having writer's block. Because if I'm writing like a fiction story and I find I run into a difficult patch, well, then I'll just switch over and I'll do another type of writing. Film reviews was one way of doing that. I would write a 2,000 word film review. And then by the time I did that, I could go back and work on the other story. Of course, my wife said, well, you know what? You ought to put them up on a website and stuff like that. She said, because people are always asking you, what do you think of this movie? What do you think of that movie? She said, well, if you just write the review, you can just tell them, well, go read the review. Yeah, and you've got a lot of them. I mean, how many how many reviews have you do you have now? Yeah, it's kind of gotten out of hand. It's like four hundred reviews up there. Yeah. Are you still doing your podcast? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm I'm doing a different podcast now. For seven years, I did Better in the Dark with uh, Tom DJ, and that was and, and we talked about movies on this one. And then now I got suckered into doing this another one with uh, uh, another good friend of mine, Perry Constantine, mm-hmm. who is a writer who lives in Japan, he asked me to do uh, podcasts focusing on superhero movies. Okay. So we've been doing that since uh, last September, believe it or not. Wow. I find it hard to believe. Yeah. yeah. Now, Perry had that, he had the Japan on film podcast. Yeah. And yeah. he had you on talking about Seven Samurai. Is that where that started, where you guys decided you were going to just keep, keep podcasting except talk about I, You know what? I, you know what? These guys tricked me into it, really. I, I <laughs> If you ask me how I started doing superheroes, he, he said, oh, yeah, well, you know, why don't we, uh, you know, just talk about superheroes and we, okay, sure. And, you yeah. know, and I started talking, then he called me up next week. Oh, well, let's do this movie. Okay, well, we'll do this movie. Next thing I know, somebody's saying, oh, you're podcasting again? I said, what? And I go to the website and my <laughs> name's up there and everything like that. I said, yeah, well, I guess I am. Okay, what's, the, you, name, what's the name of that podcast? Superhero Cinephile. Google is your friend, as you say. And uh, yeah, we got about, I think, we got about like 20 episodes that we've got up there already. Yeah, we did. There's our massive three-hour Watchmen episode that we did. We've done a couple of of the Batman movies. We did uh, the original Superman movie with Christopher Reeve, The Crow. What is your writing process like? I have absolutely no idea. (laughs) I don't. Seriously, Pete. And you know what? People think I'm trying to be funny or facetious or whatever, but there is still so much about my own process I don't understand. Like, people will say, oh, okay, well, why did you write this scene this way? Or, or how do you do this? Or how do you do that? And I guess this comes out of the fact that I love movies so much and I'm so visual because when I'm sitting and writing, pretty much everything is playing out on a mental movie screen that's in my head. Mm-hmm. So I just sit down. I start at the beginning and I go all the way through the end. Okay, I see. don't, I know some writers, they like write in chunks, like mm-hmm. they'll write certain scenes first and then they'll go back and they'll fill it. No, I can't do that. I have to start at the beginning and go all the way completely through to the end. And I know pretty much all of the major beats or scenes that I want to hit in the story. And I just trust that my subconscious, that when I get to a nebulous gray area where I'm not too sure what's going to happen, I trust that by the, I trust in my subconscious enough that by the time I get to that part, I'll know what to do. You ever use that old Paul classic? If things get dull, just have something coming through the window with a gun. Oh, absolutely! Oh, I'm a big believer not? in that. Yeah. Now, there's two kinds of writers. There's there's and we, you know we cause we talked about this last month. There's 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 plotters and there's pantsers. Oh, absolutely. Okay, so I, I'm a plotter. Gary's a pantser. Are really? Are you a pantser, Derek? Abs- absolutely. I. If you ask me how I write a novel or a story, it's by guessing by God. Now, let me say one thing. I have a tremendous amount of respect for those writers who put everything on little note cards. And, I mean, you know, they know every detail of of the story from start to finish. And they know all the characters and they have all of the plot points all, you know, diagrammed out and everything like that. I have a tremendous amount of respect. For writers who can do that because you know what if i did all that then i wouldn't want to write the story i'm with you yeah yeah I, I mean i can't know every detail because then there's nothing left to surprise me it's like watching a movie that i've seen already and you know i can still watch the movie and still derive a certain amount of 
entertainment value from it, but it's never going to be like the first time when I had no idea what was going to happen. Sitting next to me uh, right here on my desk while we're talking, I have 14 unfinished stories sitting right there. I dug them out the other day to figuring I might finish some of them. Are you the same? Do you have pieces that don't get done or are you pretty good about finishing everything? I'm pretty good about finishing them. I have three novels that have been sitting around for a couple of years because, yeah, I'm not sure where they're going to go. There's one that I actually think I, I haven't done anything with it because I'm wondering, should I tone it down because the sex and violence and language is like really extreme and people may say, well, Derek went off the rails. It's a novel called The Infidels, which is like my homage to The Wild Bunch. That's been sitting around for a couple of years. I've got like two or three, you know. Two or three. Yeah, two or three novels that short stories, I those aren't a problem because when an idea for a short story or a novella comes to me, usually it's the ending that comes to me first. So I know how it ends. So, okay, as long as I know how it ends, I know how to get there. A lot of times I will start something and 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 I actually honestly have no idea how it's going to end. Yeah, that's my formula. That was my problem going back to Dylan. Dylan and the legend of the Golden Bell. That's why I had to rewrite it eight times because I had no idea how how it was going to end. I got a notebook somewhere which has the names and the premises for about about a dozen novels that, that I haven't started yet. Yeah, and I'm like you. I got like a stack of like eight or nine notebooks that's got all kinds of like, you know, ideas and characters and bits of dialogue and, uh, you know, descriptions and stuff like that. Because I, I usually don't like to start unless I'm 60% sure I know what I'm doing. I'm confident in letting that 40% be kind of nebulous. But like I said, I trust myself because a lot of work takes place in my subconscious, which I like to describe as like, it's like a warehouse that looks like something out of, I don't know, a David Lynch, you know, movie. And there's this, there's this twisted, cranky old version of me that lives and works there constantly while I'm hanging out watching movies and having fun and getting drunk. You know, this guy's in my subconscious and he's always working on my story. And he's pissed off all the time because he's the one that's got to work all the time. He doesn't get a day off. Do you work regularly? Do you have like regular writing hours or do you just sort of write when the inspiration hits you? I write something every day. I don't necessarily write on what I'm supposed to be working on, but I have not only the Ferguson Theater, but I also have Ferguson Inc., which is another blog I have where I have interviews, book reviews, Mm-hmm. you know, information about, I have a Patreon page where I currently have three different serials going. Every month I write a new installment. There's a Dylan serial going on and then there's two others. And then there's the Dylan website. All of this stuff has to constantly be updated and new material has to be produced for them. So yeah, so I'm writing every day. I'm not necessarily writing on what I'm supposed to be doing that day. But yeah, I write every day. There's a lot of myths that go along with writing. And one of them is, well, you should write every day. Well, you know what? You can't write every day because sometimes life gets in the way. And and let's face it, some days you wake up and you don't feel like writing. You just don't for one reason or another. Now, here's the danger in that you let that feeling go on for too long. Now, me, I'm a big believer in that. Listen, if you feel like taking a, you know, like a day or two off and not going near the day, me, for two or three days every month, I don't even turn on my computer. I just push my way from it. I leave social media alone. I, I, I give my mind a rest from whatever I'm working on. And I usually find that that helps me come back and then I can dive into whatever it is that I'm supposed to be doing with a fresh perspective and, you know, like an attitude, you know. Now, having said that, let me say that I can have that type of attitude because, thank God, I'm, I'm in a position because I'm retired now. I retired early due to health, you know, issues. Mm-hmm. I had a pulmonary embolism after my second one. My doctor said to me, well, listen, he said, I don't know your financial situation, but if you can retire and just take it easy, he said, I would advise you to do so because if you have a third one of these, it's unlikely you're going to survive. And I talked to my wife, Patricia. I always tell people, what's the one thing? Okay. If they ask me, what's the one thing that they need to be a successful writer? I say, you need a spouse that understands what you're doing. And, and, And Patricia has 
been excellent in supporting me. And when I came to her and said, well, you know what? I want to retire early. She said, go ahead. She said, write your ass off. I don't care. Go ahead. That's what you've always wanted to do. Go ahead and do it. She said, we're not eating macaroni and cheese five nights a week. You know, we're doing all right. I'm in a position where I don't have to make a living from my writing. I like making money from it, you know, <laughs> of course. But I think that if I actually had to make a living from my writing, I would probably have <laughs> Uh, how can I put this? I would probably have a more diligent attitude and be more professional about, you know, writing every day. I remember when I was a kid growing up and I was writing and, you know, I grew up in Memphis, Stuyvesant, Brooklyn, New York, which was not the nicest of places to grow up at, you know. And I remember when I would show the stuff that I was writing, which of course was influenced by, you know, Michael Moorcock and Edgar Rice Burroughs and, you know, Lester Dent and all this other, you know, stuff. And I would show it to, you know, certain people. And they would say to me, well, this is really nice, but uh, why don't you write about what you know? You know, you growing up in, you know, the projects and, you know, and it's, it's hard and people need to know this and everything like that. And I said, well, no, they don't. First of all, there are other people that's writing that stuff that do it a lot better than that I could. And second of all, I'm not hardwired to write that sort of stuff. I firmly believe that people write certain things because that's what they're hardwired to write. I could not write a realistic depiction of my life growing up in the quote unquote ghetto because there are thousands of books written on that subject already, written by people who know what they're talking about. Me, unfortunately, I know what I'm talking about when I'm making things up. I used to get that a whole lot. People would say, you know, they would say, I'll be very honest here. I was in a writer's group back in the mid 80s. Like we're talking about like 85, 86, 87. Mm -hmm. And it was me and about eight other black people was in this group. And, you know, it was all black people and they would read my stories and they would tear, tear them apart. Mm-hmm. They would say, well, this is nonsense. This is BS. And they would say, you know, stop trying to write like a white man. Stop writing white people stuff. Write something for our people. Mm-hmm. You know, write something that you know about. And I said, and you know, I stuck with that group for a while, but I saw that it was not for me. So I left because, you know, plainly they didn't get what I was trying to write. So there was no reason for me to be there, you know. And I understood what they meant because they were into writing very heavy political stuff, very, uh, you know, uh, what's the word, very Afrocentric stuff. Whereas what I wanted to do was that I wanted to create black heroes that I didn't see growing up, which I thought was important. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have loved if when I was 14 to 15 years old, I could have went to the bookstore and picked up a book about a black James Bond or a black mm-hmm. Doc Savage or a black Shadow or a black Tarzan, which I eventually did find when I discovered the work of Charles Saunders who wrote Imaro, and he was a huge influence on me. I mean, once I found his books, I remember distinctly spending a couple of Saturdays going to every used bookstore in Manhattan. And in Manhattan, there was a lot of bookstores back in the 80s, especially used bookstores, trying to find as many of his books as I could find. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was my whole thing. I was writing, you know, 14 and 15 to 16 year olds to be able to go to a bookstore and get a Dylan book and get a Fortune McCall book mm-hmm. and, you know, and get a Sebastian Ridd book and read about, you know, these black heroes doing things that you traditionally saw white heroes doing. Charles Saunders had, I remember seeing, you know, Imaru books or hearing about Imaru when I was young. I mean, I was a young kid in the whitest white part of white Canada. Uh, and we still heard, you know, we, we, we would see Imaru books. And, you know, of course they call them, the Black Tarzan. Right. That was the publisher, though. That wasn't him. As a matter of fact, uh, they pulled the books. Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Inc., you know, his estate. They got into it, and they said, no, no, no. Can't do that. Can't call him the Black Tarzan. Charles Sanders still writing, right? Isn't he? Yeah. He lives in Nova Scotia. No kidding. As a matter of fact, we stay in touch. We've become, you know, for me to actually be in touch with one of my heroes is, like, totally mind-boggling. Actually, one of the projects I'm working on now is because Charles created a, a, a 1930s black hero for Airship 27 called Dombala. And he wrote that novel a few years back. But he wasn't able to write a sequel 
because he's working on this massive, massive project that he has asked me not to tell anybody about. Okay, so he couldn't do a sequel, but he talked to Ron, you know, Fortier. Ron Fortier. Publisher Fort, Fortier. At, at Airship 27. Yeah. And they contacted me and they asked me, would I write a sequel to Don wow. Bob? And I agreed. So that's one of the things I'm working on now. Wow. And to be asked by Charles Saunders to write one of his characters, well, that's better than getting an Oscar, as far as I'm concerned. Okay. So forget about getting through the door. Your head's going to be so big, you can't even get off the couch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. What can I tell you? Lord, it's hard to be humble. <laughs> one of the things about being associated with New Pope is that I have come into contact with so many professionals who treat me like a professional. I guess that's where that imposter syndrome kind of thing comes in because uh, yeah. I, because I'm going to say that one day they're going to figure out that I'm not this guy that they think they, you know, I am, you know, and they say, Oh no, you're, you know, you're a very good writer. And really me, you know, and these are guys with, I mean, serious professional credits, you know, and I've come into contact with a lot of them through my association, you know, through new Pope. So uh, I'm just extraordinarily blessed. I'm just enjoying myself. It's good. To, it's good to be the king. <laughs> if you want to know more about Derek Ferguson, check out his websites. Ferguson Inc. can be found at fergusoninc.com. That's I-N-K.com. For his movie reviews, go to the Ferguson Theater at DerekLFerguson.com. And you can find his Dylan novels and his other books at Amazon.com. Or if you want to support his writing directly, you can go to his Patreon site at patreon.com backslash Derek Ferguson. The Dark Worlds podcast is presented by Rage Machine Books. Visit our website at darkworldsquarterly.gwthomas.org and browse our bookstore by clicking on the link that says Rage Machine Books or download free issues of Dark Worlds Quarterly magazine. Until next time, I'm M.D. Jackson. Thank <laughs> you.